0: Welcome to the Confluence Investment Management Bi-Weekly Geopolitical Report podcast for June 6, 2022. Back in our May 9th report, we projected a world evolving to two major economic and political blocks. In many ways, this process has already begun. Increasing barriers to trade, capital, and migration are already evident, and of course, the Ukraine war is serving as an accelerant. Confluence Investment Management, in its study, identified countries that seem likely to join the U.S.-led bloc, countries that are likely to align with China and Russia, and countries that may want to stake out a middle ground. As you might expect, the U.S.-led countries include many rich, highly developed democracies. The countries in the China-Russia camp are likely to be poorer and more populous, but they do include many major commodity producers, and that is our focus today, commodities. Confluence market strategist Patrick Fear and Hernandez joins us to look at various resources one by one and identify potentially significant problem areas for the U.S. block and also some action steps for investors. Patrick, you divide your report into the good, the bad, and the ugly. Instead of beginning with the good, I want to focus first on the ugly, since that seems to be an obvious driver of our current geopolitics. I'm talking, of course, first about oil. Just how great is the gap between the U.S. block and the China-Russia block? First,
1: thanks for having me on the program, Phil. To answer your question, just about any way you look at it, the China-Russia bloc has a much bigger endowment of crude oil than the U.S. block does. The China-Russia bloc has more than three times the proved reserves that the U.S. bloc has. Crude production in the two blocks is currently very similar, but the U.S. bloc's output is far below its consumption, which requires imports. The China-Russia bloc's production is far more than its consumption— allowing it to export. And on top of all that, the US bloc imposes much tighter regulation on its oil industry, which means that much of its endowment is effectively unavailable. As the world fractures into these rival blocks, this means that the US bloc will probably be dependent on crude oil from the China-Russia bloc for years to come, with obvious implications for geopolitics and the global economy.
0: Well, more oil production by the U.S. bloc might help, but would you say the gap in reserves is simply too large to make a meaningful dent? It'll
1: definitely be a challenge. The U.S. itself is in a relatively good position in terms of its crude oil supply, owing to innovations like horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracking over the last couple of decades. But if the world really breaks up into relatively separate blocks like we think it will, the U.S. may end up supplying more and more of the big, rich economies that make up the rest of the U.S. block. It would be very difficult for the U.S. to cover all of the consumption needs of its block. So the block as a whole will still probably be dependent on
0: supplies from the China-Russia block or from more neutral countries. Which brings me to another energy resource, natural gas. Is the U.S. block of countries in a similar vulnerable position on the natural gas front? We think
1: it is. With gas, the U.S. bloc's production-consumption balance is less dire, but there's still a big need for supplies from the China-Russia bloc or elsewhere. A complicating factor with gas is that the fuel is harder to transport over long distances by sea. In particular, the European countries in the U.S. bloc will likely have to make very tough, time-consuming, and expensive transitions from relying on Russian pipeline gas. Patrick,
0: it seems like the West has only limited energy answers other than conservation. And for the foreseeable future, we will be vulnerable to pressure from oil and gas producers, similar to what's evident today as Russia applies pressure to Europe. How might this drive geopolitical relationships? Can we anticipate the U.S. moving to overlook human rights concerns and somehow woo countries like Saudi Arabia and Venezuela? Well, to answer that question,
1: let me remind you that in the Cold War, the things that defined the West in its competition with the Soviet Union were, first, democracy, and secondly, capitalism. But when push came to shove, the West was often willing to tolerate less than democratic regimes so long as they were committed to capitalism versus communism. The West worked with plenty of dictators and autocrats in the fight against the USSR. In the current crisis, we've seen some outreach of that type, such as the U.S. approach to Venezuelan strongman Nicolas Maduro, but it doesn't seem to have gained much traction. As of right now, I think that in the future geopolitical competition, the U.S. and the West will tolerate less than full capitalism in order to unify its bloc. For example, it may tolerate trade protectionism and industrial policies among its members, but authoritarian countries
0: may well be left on the outside. Well, I'm looking now for some good news. Are there natural resources where the emerging U.S.-led bloc of countries holds a clear advantage? Yes, and that's one of the
1: happy surprises in our analysis. As we highlight in our written report, there are many types of mineral resources in which the U.S. block has a much better endowment than the China-Russia block. Copper is a great example, as is nickel. And a very big surprise is that the U.S. block also sports much bigger reserves and production capacity for lithium, which is likely to be a key resource of the future as economies become more electrical. Electrified and more dependent on
0: rechargeable batteries. Would it be to our advantage to demand concessions from China-led countries in return for copper supplies? That
1: may seem far-fetched right now, but as the U.S.-China geopolitical rivalry intensifies in the coming years, I wouldn't be surprised if the U.S. restricted its own exports to the China-Russia bloc and pressured other members of the U.S. bloc to do the same, perhaps by imposing export tariffs, security-related embargoes, or something like that. In other words, a a sharp U.S.-China confrontation could well lead to the U.S. bloc launching economic warfare against the China-Russia bloc that would feel pretty similar to what the Russians are doing with energy in Europe.
0: Patrick, your report finds that while the U.S.-led bloc has a lot of iron ore, this resource would not be a potential source of leverage against the China-led group. Why not? Well,
1: the way we look at it, a mineral resource can be a source of leverage if it's unevenly distributed and if the holder is willing to restrict its sale to a rival country that needs it. The problem with iron ore is that it's really, really widely distributed around the world. Plenty of countries have it, including those in the China-Russia block. We simply don't control enough of the supply of iron ore, so it'll be hard to use it as a source of leverage.
0: In terms of technologies for tomorrow, I was happy to learn about the ample supplies of lithium, as you mentioned, in U.S.-led countries. But my mood changed when you discussed China's dominance in rare earths and cobalt. Could you summarize for us?
1: Yes, that's a very disconcerting finding. Cobalt and rare earths are essential for a range of cutting-edge technologies, including energy and energy storage. And the U.S. block as a whole has few reserves or production capacity for them. And with the rare earths, even if we could produce the raw material, the bulk of the world's refining and processing capacity is in China. The U.S. and its allied countries are trying to resolve this problem by encouraging new investment in the industry, but for the foreseeable future, the China-Russian bloc controls the supply of these minerals and could put us in a vulnerable situation.
0: Patrick, it's tempting as we concentrate on commodities to forget about some potential intrinsic advantages for U.S.-led countries. I guess I'm thinking about the ability in the past to create profitable responses to economic challenges and develop new industries, and also our appeal to scientists around the world who may be fleeing totalitarian regimes. Am I right to be hopeful?
1: Yes, and, and I try to emphasize this in the written report. As dire as the situation is for the U.S. block regarding some commodities, it's important to remember that supply shortages can also spur new innovation and efficiencies that could put our economy on a stronger footing in the future. It's important not to be too pessimistic. We should keep our eyes open for new opportunities that might arise from this situation.
0: You mentioned in your initial report that some countries may want to sit on the fence and not join either economic bloc. Now, in terms of resources, which among these countries stand out? and, And what can we expect in terms of lobbying efforts from China and also from the West?
1: Well, of the countries that we classify as truly neutral... Perhaps the most interesting from a mineral commodity perspective would be Indonesia and Vietnam. They're both important players in a range of different minerals, such as coal, nickel, cobalt for Indonesia, and bauxite and rare earths for Vietnam. Our methodology also assigns some Middle East petro giants like the United Arab Emirates and Qatar as neutral, and of course they're big players in oil and gas. In all these cases, we would look look for the U.S. and China blocks to aggressively try to curry favor with tools ranging from advantageous trade concessions to foreign aid to political support.
0: I understand, Patrick, that India made a strong presence at, the, at this year's Davos World Economic Forum in Switzerland. I, I was reading about it. What is India's strategy and, and what does India bring to the table in terms of natural resources?
1: Our methodology assigns India to the lean-toward-China camp, and we can see some confirmation of that in the way that India is trying to avoid alienating Russia in its response to the Ukraine war. Besides that, India probably produces more minerals than most people realize, especially coal and iron ore, but its huge population and economy mean that it consumes much of what it produces.
0: Now, Patrick, as we anticipate these trends that you've discussed and, and the evolution to at least two major economic and political blocks, what stock sectors might stand to benefit?
1: Well, for those commodities that are unevenly distributed and that the China-Russia bloc might try to hoard or restrict, the insecurity of supply is likely to buoy prices. So one obvious sector that would benefit would be materials or energy. But again, The most interesting subsectors would be for those producers who can supply minerals that are in short supply. In addition, given the threat to some supplies, we think it's worth keeping an eye on sectors like alternative energy producers, recyclers, and the
0: developers of
1: advanced materials.
0: And as we anticipate rising commodity prices, which stock sectors should we be more cautious about?
1: Well, unfortunately, there will probably be increased risk, higher input costs, and and profit pressures for any sectors that are highly dependent on mineral supplies from the China-Russia bloc. One example might be airlines or air freight, which depend heavily on petroleum fuels. Another example might be the producers of advanced batteries and information technology that rely on rare earths or cobalt. In general, many commodity prices are likely to be buoyed by the U.S.-China a rivalry. And that would be enough to put pressure on profits in a wide variety of sectors.
0: Thank you, Patrick. To our listeners, our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. We wish to state that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler.